Welcome to the Word on Worldviews podcast, starring the Dispy Heretics, Ornay Fushier, and myself, Kurt Norman. We are down in the Southern Hemisphere, and we are joined by a special uh, guest today, uh, Mr. John Oglesby. And just to give a brief intro to him, which I shamelessly stole from his personal website. Uh, so that's my citation. John Oglesby is the Executive Vice President of Versity, Executive Vice President of Colorado Biblical University, the Executive Vice President of EduThrift, and the Executive Vice President of 1024 Marketing, and Director of the Oglesby Household. He is happily married to his beautiful and wonderful wife, Sierra. They have two gorgeous daughters. John loves the Lord and lives to make him known and known to the fullest. Well, welcome to our podcast, Mr. Oglesby. We're glad to have you on board with us and discuss a few things related to uh, hermeneutics and Calvinism. Uh, I'll now hand over to Mornay, who would uh, like to ask you uh, a bit more about yourself. All right. Hi, John. Um, the, uh, you are also the host of the Hermeneutics podcast, so that's why we thought it would be quite an appropriate guest to have on to discuss this. And we've also discussed this with some other guests as well, um, but you get your perspective. So before we get into that, um, if you want to maybe say something more about yourself, Kurt has given an extensive introduction there, but uh, anything more about yourself which you want to share? No, I, I you know I want to say I appreciate the opportunity to be here. I, I, um, uh, I, I think podcasts are really important, and I, I really appreciate what you guys are doing, and especially the topic you guys are discussing. You know, not just in this episode, but overall, the word on worldviews. It's I remember going through my uh, master's degree, going through a, a worldview course, and it just being a, a bit of a, some would say eye opener. Maybe I would say more like a, a life changing. You know, just the way I the way I uh, view and interpret reality around me. And so very excited to be on on here. And I'm, I'm really excited to discuss a, a little bit about what we're talking about today, especially as it pertains to the hermeneutics of things. Uh, it's a passion of mine. It's, it's probably my uh, kind of the area that I could spend uh, uh, a really, really long time talking about. I think it's foundational for understanding worldview. And so uh, so really excited about today's discussion uh, and, and looking forward to getting into it. All right, thanks. Um, thanks for joining us. Um, so maybe we can start with the following question and you can share your perspective. Um, in your, from your point of view, from in your opinion, does Calvinism as a theological system uh, arise from a flawed or inconsistent hermeneutic? And if so, where do the proverbial wheels come off here? Yeah, it's a great question, and and uh, I, I think it does. Um, so I, I guess I would say certainly, and I'll give you I'll give you some examples. Uh, there's a there's a book I, I want to say it's Introduction to Biblical Hermeneutics. It's it's uh, authored by uh, Moses Silva as well as Walter Kaiser Jr., which is an, it's a fascinating book because they don't agree with each other and they kind of take turns writing chapters. And so it's a lot of fun. They agree with each other in some, in some major areas. And so it, it's not a, it's not a battle in the book. It's, 
it's a very well-written text, and so I recommend it. But uh, Moses Silva writes a chapter, it's like one of the last chapters, and it's called The Calvinistic Hermeneutic. Uh, and he makes the case that, um, uh, he makes the case that, that John Calvin, uh, his exegesis informed his theology, but his theology also informed his exegesis. And he does this by looking at his, his uh, outcomes, which is his theology, but then throughout his life, he looks at his commentaries, uh, and he sees the two interacting with each other and kind of this two-way street, if you will. Uh, and so he, and Moses Silva is pretty um, outspoken about his defense of what he calls the theological hermeneutic, which uh, the theological hermeneutic is, is basically the idea that the, one system of theology ought to inform their exegesis. In fact, Moses Silva defines it as a two-way street between the two. Right, uh, and so you have your theology, which then informs your exegesis, but your exegesis is supposed to also inform your theology. Well, the problem with that is um, having uh, two authorities, and somehow they share with each other and will inform each other. The re- the outcome practically is that your if you begin whatever you begin with, that's going to be what is authoritative. So if you begin with your system of theology. It's going to exegesis, and I think that's what happens uh, with many people who would adhere to a Calvinistic or or would claim to be a Calvinist. Uh, and so, uh, Calvinism, I would say, comes from a flawed uh, hermeneutic, and the flaw is that the theology comes first. Um, and so, we see this also in, in Cornelius Van Til. This concept. Uh, it stems from reliance on historical theology for one's hermeneutic. Uh, Van Til, uh, Cornelius Van Til, reformed apologist, uh, is explicit about this. That is his uh, his claim is that historical theology is where our hermeneutics lie. And of course, the problem with that then is that you're deriving your hermeneutic from from a man-made system of theology and then applying that to the scriptures. So the theology is going to inform your exegesis, uh, well, I should say, and result in eisegesis, right? So it's going to inform your interpretation. Um, Calvin Calvin is a little bit less explicit on this, but Calvin doesn't touch much on hermeneutics. Uh, and as Moses Silva points out, I think he, he, he finds himself in the same position that Van Til does. Uh, and so it's resulted in a theological hermeneutic, which uh, for for many reasons I have a pretty significant issue with, and I think that's where you get Calvinism from. It's a result of that. Okay, thanks. That's a comprehensive uh, discussion. Interesting works. Uh, um, I've never heard, well, I've briefly heard, but I'm not really familiar with Moses Silva and those perspectives. Um, But that's a recurring theme that I hear, is that the theology is often used as a hermeneutical tool, really. So yeah. that's very interesting yeah. to hear that from your perspective as well. Yeah, and, and Moses Silva in his chapter, he gives, uh, he gives I think, his three defenses of doing so. And one of his defenses is that we all do it anyways, uh, which is an interesting, an interesting claim that I don't think is true. But he also encourages, uh, you know, so he's a, he's a reformed guy. Moses Silva is. He would consider himself a Calvinist. And... Uh, and so he uses dispensationalism as an example 
just, and he does it for good reason too. It's interesting. So he goes, he goes and he talks about, uh, the, the benefit of the analogy of faith, uh, coming up front in your interpretive method. And so you're taking, uh, you know, kind of the church's teachings, the system of theology, and you're using it up front. And he even goes as far to say, uh, and I, I don't, I'm not going to get a direct quote, but he goes as far as to say you should force your, you should force the text to fit your system. And in a footnote, he does put the reason for this is not to inform your interpretation with your system necessarily, but that if it if you can't force it to fit, then your system's wrong. Uh, I think he's back. I think it's backwards. You don't you don't try to force the text into your system. You just simply let the text speak for itself, uh, and then and then. And then it'll the outcome of that will impact your system of theology if you let the text run first. But his approach is you take your system first, and then you force the text into your system. And I don't know if you've if you you know interacted. I mean, I'll, I'll make it personal. There's been multiple times where I've wanted a text to say something else, and it's pretty easy to make it fit. I can make you can make the Bible say a lot of things, uh, and so forcing it to fit your system isn't as difficult as some might think it is. Uh, so it's a dangerous game to play, and that's kind of the that's kind of the the method there of the theological hermeneutic, and and I would say that Calvinism comes out of a form of that, if you will. Okay, well we are now going to move on to a few questions that Kurt has. So Kurt, you can go ahead. All right, uh, thank you for that. For for the lay person listening, I don't for want of a better term, the one that's not as informed. Could you? Maybe give us a just what are the core components of Calvinist and Reformed hermeneutics, and the, with an explanation, uh, yes, just a, a, an explanation of how they mm-hmm. add to or subtract from the Word of God. And then uh, after you've you've given that just that short rundown, I'd like to ask you if you know of any Calvinist and Reformed groups that are trying to change this or perhaps have. Uh, uh, changed it to some extent, but you haven't really got yeah. any further. Yeah, yeah. I would, I would define the Reformed hermeneutic uh, like this. It's basically, it's a version of the theological hermeneutic uh, in which the interpreter uh, uses the Reformed tradition as the lens by which the scripture is filtered within the interpretive process. So, like I was explaining a moment ago in the theological hermeneutic that it's a more broad term, you know, a dispensationalist can do the same thing. We can take our system of theology and then interpret the scriptures through that system. That's possible for us to do. And that would be considered a theological hermeneutic. A reformed hermeneutic is that except you're using reformed theology, right? So it's taking, it's taking the reformed tradition, uh, starting with that and then running that, running the scripture through the lens of that, theological system of the Reformed tradition. So uh, an example of this, uh, Kevin DeYoung, who uh, he writes an article, he, he writes a couple articles for the Gospel Coalition, but he writes one uh, that basically says, uh, he, I forget the exact title, but it's our, it's our theology should be used to inform our exegesis or something to that nature. And he says, he says this, he says, as a Christian, I hope that my theology is open to correction. But as a minister, I have to start somewhere. We all do. For me, that means starting with Reformed theology and my confessional tradition and sticking with that unless I have really good reason not to. So he's, he's, he's taking his Reformed tr- theology and confessional tradition, and he's starting with that. 
as he approaches, uh, you know, his teaching and but his teaching is based on the scriptures. So he's he's taking his reformed theology and confessional tradition, and he's starting with that in his interpretive process, which is a that's a reformed hermeneutic. You're starting with your reformed tradition, and you're trying to understand the scripture through that lens. Now, notably, he does, and he, you know, he mentions in sticking with that, unless I have really good reason not to. And it's implied that the reason not to is that the scripture disagrees with his tradition. The problem is if you're if you're beginning with the reformed tradition, uh, then then that's that's where you're going to land. You're you're going to stick with that, and uh, the scriptures you can make it you can make it fit if you will. And so uh, that's that's a definition, if you will, of reformed hermeneutic. A Calvinist hermeneutic would be the same thing. A lot of people like John Gerstner, who writes wrongly dividing the word of truth, and a couple other guys, they would they would say Calvinism and Reformed they're synonymous. Um, uh, so that's kind of the idea. You're taking the you're taking the theology, you're placing it first, uh, and then reading the scripture through that lens. And and notably, um, you know, most people who are Calvinists or Reformed would kind of balk at the idea that that uh, I'm saying that. Calvinists and Reformed people do that. Um, most of them would, uh, and because it's not—it's not in theory. It's pretty simple to understand that if you if you're reading the Scripture through the lens of your Reformed tradition, and the Reformed tradition is what's authoritative, not the Scriptures. Uh, but in practice, that's that's typically that's what's happening, and that's how you would define a Reformed hermeneutic. Right, thank you very much for that. Um, and ju mm -hmm. just a, a follow up to that. Um, is there anyone you've read or perhaps listened to you think is who is would still be called reformed or Calvinist, but has made the most progress in moving away from that? That actually lets the scriptures speak more for themselves than the tradition. Just interested to hear if you've come across anyone like that that's well known. You know, you know, I haven't, um, I, and I think the reason is I think it seems to be that that is that's been the common position. Uh, the the idea that the scriptures are speaking for themselves and and I don't think anybody uh, I don't know of any reformed or Calvinist people who would say well I'm not I don't want the scriptures to speak for themselves of course they're gonna they're gonna disagree with that uh, so it's always been the position that they're under the impression that they're not employing a uh, theological hermeneutic but in recent time it's become more and more popular to see, individuals reformed and not reformed holding to a theological hermeneutic openly saying yes this is the way we should approach it um uh, and this is uh, we even see this in in dispensational camps as well um uh, it's pretty common actually for someone to defend uh the theological hermeneutic uh, and uh at least some some form of the theological hermeneutic so i don't know of any calvinist reform groups trying to change that um because I think it's always been understood that that we should let the scriptures speak for themselves, but in recent days it's been more common for one to say the theological hermeneutic is not only accepted, necessary, and maybe even unavoidable. Does that make any sense? Yes, it does make sense. Uh, thanks for your um, explanation on that. It's, it certainly does make sense. So uh, if we can move on to the next question, I heard something interesting when I was at seminary. I went to the Masters Academy International. It's the, the campus that is in South Africa. And I heard one of my teachers say in class that 
during the Protestant Reformation, um, reform only went up to a point, you know, in, in going to uh, literal, grammatical, historical, hermeneutic. And uh, he, he said the reason why the progress stopped was because of the, the tumult that it, it brought. I mean, it was a very violent uh, time of upheaval in, in Europe's history. So I'd like to ask you, um, what role does the history of the Protestant Reformation play in Calvinists continuing their um, method of interpretation? Uh, was it this um, upheaval that ended the progress of going back to literalism? Uh, or were there other things involved? Yeah, I, I think I think that's a good explanation, but I think it's a, it's a seriously complex question. Um, and, and what I mean by that is, um, I think there's a lot more to it than simply the the upheaval. Although I think that does certainly have something to do with it. But before we even go down that road, I'd want to define literalism and look at kind of where were the reformers actually heading. Uh, so some would argue that the reformers were never going to literalism, and and uh, you know a lot of one of the most frustrating things for me is is the misunderstanding of what a literal interpretation actually is. Um, uh, but uh, a literal interpretation, of course, is as you know understands the existence of figures of speech. Some would say literalism does not. You know, some would say maybe wooden literalism or something like that. So I think the reformers were heading towards a uh, what I would suggest is a I, I use the term normative because it seems to be better understood a normative understanding of the scriptures, um, and uh, that I think was uh, successful in a lot of areas, especially right as they're as they're kind of combating the Catholic Church and their interpretation and outcomes of that interpretation, uh, but some of those traditions continued on right uh and we see that and the reason why they continued on i think that's that's something that's more difficult whether it's some would argue you know it was advances in the sciences persecution of the high church priests societal pressures um but i think it has to be a combination of all of it depending on what time uh, is being talked about so each reformer we're saying reformers kind of as a blanket statement but each reformer is going to have uh, their own unique reasoning as well, right? So, I mean, even like you look at John Calvin uh, and his and his understanding of hermeneutic method and its uh, its dependence on historical theology. We see this also in Van Til, obviously, you know, uh, centuries later. Uh, but he's pulling from Calvin, um, and so you know why Calvin would hold to that? That's just his position. That's not sim That's not a. That's not due to a you know, an upheaval or violence or societal advancement or societal pressures or scientific advancements or anything like that. So I think it's it's a complex question, but overall, I think there's a there's a combination of multiple things that are going on um, uh, that would have, uh, if you want to say halted um, or maybe slowed the progress towards a normative understanding. But certainly, uh, you know, Martin Luther and those guys, they, they – uh, made massive strides towards a normative understanding of the scriptures. And maybe I should say massive strides to a return of a normative understanding of the scriptures. Cause as we know, we look back in church history and we see that that is a, a, a normative understanding of the scriptures is found throughout church history. But 
seems to pretty much disappear for a thousand years up until the Reformation. So, um, does that does that make any sense? I know I'm not I'm not getting real specific, but I think it's a it's a pretty it's a pretty complex question that has complex answers, and I think there's a lot of different reasons why it was was slowed in progress. Maybe that makes a, a lot of sense. Uh, I've sort of hung on to the upheaval side of it for a while. I didn't think too deeply about everything else that you you mentioned all of that. Uh, it, it adds a bit more. It, it, um, it's a more of a comprehensive uh, answer to uh, to that. And yes, that's that's and, the word I was I should have used normative. That's what, that's what I meant. Um, all right. Well, continuing from there, uh, you will probably know know this as well that there is such a thing as a Calvinist dictionary. Now, I'd like to ask you: Can you comment on the Calvinist dictionary? I mean, for example the use of the same words and terms as ourselves and what do they mean versus what do they not mean? For example, total depravity, regeneration, conversion, repentance, faith, etc. Because we could be in a, a conversation and I found they try and dominate the conversation and uh, try and you try and force you to agree with them. They're using these terms and they know you know these terms and they think that the more authoritatively they speak on it, uh, the, the more you will agree with them, have to agree with them. Otherwise, you are this, that, and the other thing with that uh, label gun of theirs that they have. Yeah, what's the kind of the running uh, the running name for, for someone like that? Is it like a cage stage Calvinist, if you will? Uh, oh, you know, this, I think this is... <laughs> this is... This is certainly the case with with various groups and communities. So I want to I want to be fair and say that you know I've I've had conversations with non-Calvinists who are who are doing the same thing. It's simply a complexity of language, right? And words are having ranges of meaning. They shift meaning as time progresses. Uh, one community, uh, you know, community defines words. So one community would define a word one way. Another community defines it a different way. Now the two communities come together and try to have conversation using those words, but they mean different things by the words. And so it, it, it can be common. It does seem to happen a lot more when having a discussion with, uh, uh, with Calvinists or, or Reformed um, individuals. You know, a, kind of a, a, a silly example. I have a – my brother-in-law is Reformed uh, and a Calvinist, and so we always have conversations, and, and uh, usually it's – it's really inquisitive trying to figure out what each other, you know, what each person understands about certain doctrines, mostly revolving around either eschatology or soteriology. And so we're sitting there having discussions and, and uh, so like we'll be talking about total depravity. Okay. For example. And, uh, and he's like, well, well, you know, he's making his argument and I'm like, yeah, I, I understand that. And, and I agree with that. He's like, see, you're a Calvinist and you didn't even know it. It's like, well, <laughs> I wouldn't go that far. We need to discuss it a little bit more because there are some areas of disagreement, right? Um, uh, and so, so I guess what I'm saying is important. It's important for us to be precise. Um, something, maybe another common example is the the idea of repentance. Okay, repentance is a is a common one that is understood differently, uh, and that's not even amongst Calvinists. Uh, you know, a common definition of repentance, at least for me, growing up was was repentance is a turning away from sin. It's a 180-degree turn. You're, 
You're at one point going towards sin, you repent, and now you're going the opposite direction of sin. And uh, I I don't think re- that's the correct definition of repentance, but everyone, a lot of people grew up with that definition, and a lot of uh, people still hold to that definition. So when I say, you know, you must repent, well, I might mean something totally different than turning from sin, right? It's considered a turning from sin by a lot of people. But by definition of the word, it is a change of mind. Now, that often results in a change of action, right? I mean, typically you're acting based on your thought, but not always, right? So my change of mind doesn't always result in a change of of action, although most of the time it will, often it will. And so when I say repentance, I'm discussing a change of mind, but someone else may be, uh, when I say repentance, they understand me as saying that it's a, it's a, definite 180 turn from sin and you're you're going the other direction right uh, and so repentance is a common total depravity i think is a good example of why these conversations can be difficult because you have to ask the question okay so total depravity is a, is a whole doctrine right so what's the definition of total depravity how would you define it and and really you're so now you're asking the question are we talking a modern understanding of total depravity the guys like maybe rc sproul or are we talking Calvin's uh, immediate followers version of total depravity? Are we looking at Calvin's understanding of total depravity, which he wasn't even um, systematized whenever Calvin wrote? He didn't define. He didn't title it as total depravity, right? So, I mean, even guys like R.C. Sproul, they're trying to rename the doctrine away from total depravity to try and be more precise so that people can understand. I think he calls it radical corruption, not total depravity. Uh, and so there's a lot of questions when dealing with things like total depravity because it's a whole doctrine that's been developed over centuries. So at what point of the development are you talking about? So when it comes to these things, I often find myself stating, you know, if you intend it this way, then I agree or disagree, right? So if, if repentance is required for salvation or if, if, uh, if, if you're trying to figure out if I agree with you on the doctrine of total depravity, well, let's define it first. And then I'll let you know if I agree with you or not, because it's just so difficult to, to you don't want to make the assumption that they're understanding words a certain way. So, you know, the Calvinist dictionary is is uh, is pretty funny because I think it, it's it's pretty accurate. Uh, it's also common amongst others. And another another example that might uh, hit home with some people is psychology. Right? What do you mean by psychology? Uh, this is particularly prominent amongst those who are who emphasize biblical counseling or newthetic counseling or integrationism, right? What do you mean by psychology? Psychology is simply a study of the soul or study of the mind. Uh, And so God has a psychology, but amongst some fields or or groups, you say psychology, and it's like you're in partnership with Satan because they're understanding psychology from a secular humanist perspective. Where I'm saying, no, I'm not agreeing with that. I'm defining psychology as what it is. And God has a psychology. I mean, he created the mind. He created the soul. So I'm sure he's got something to say about it. So defining your terms, I think, is really important. And it's just the nature of language, um, especially amongst uh, our Reformed brethren. Thank you very much for that. I I think you can tell I've had a a few (laughs) run-ins with them, having been to a, a seminary with them and also just knowing a few people that are Calvinists. And I just want to give a disclaimer. I do love my Calvinist friends. The, the few that I can get along with, I love them very much. And we do have some great <laughs> discussions. So 
Yeah, well, often I'm, I'm thinking back to seminary days. I'm thinking to a few incidents that I've had that particularly stick in my mind. So, yes, yep. if you guys yep. are listening, thank you for listening. And I love you very much. Please don't uh, not invite me to your house anymore. <laughs> uh, right. I'd like to hand over to um, Mornay now with the next two questions. Right. So continuing uh, on the topic of the dictionary or the definitions of words, uh, John, how would you then understand or define words like predestination and election as mentioned in various parts of the Bible? For example, Ephesians 1, <laughs> excuse me, and also Romans 8. Yeah, it's it's because of my, my understanding of predestination and election, this is one of those where a lot of people will call me a Calvinist. Um, uh, but I, I, I would suggest I take a third door. Uh, and I, I steal that terminology from Christopher Cohn. He's he introduced the whole uh, third door concept to me, and and I, I, so I, I use that a lot. But ultimately, I think you know, based on Ephesians one, God has predestined those to adoption. A lot of people will try to argue predestination is a communal thing, right? He's predestined the church, or he's. Uh, I've I've also heard a, a professor of mine. Uh, when he, he explained that when you're approaching predestination passages, because everyone has to deal with predestination, right? It's, in the, it's the words used in the scriptures, um, that that it's not about God predestining. The passage is about why God predestines. Well, that's just a, you're just avoiding the question. I think it's pretty explicit in Ephesians 1. God has predestined those to adoption or elected those, uh, specifically the phrase used there is predestined to adoption in Ephesians 1. But at the on the flip side of that, man is responsible for his decision to believe in God, uh, which means man is actually making a choice. We see the obedience of faith in Romans 1.5, you know, the, the, uh, the concept of belief in, as a prerequisite uh, in John 3.16. So, so man, it is an act of obedience. Now, to be fair, in Romans 4, it's pretty. It is very clear that this choice is not considered a work. And so man is not working his way to salvation. He's simply believing. Voice man makes. And, so, and man is held responsible for that. And I would also suggest another topic that comes up that's important in this discussion is God did, in fact, Jesus did, in fact, die for the whole world. We see this in 1 John 2, 2. Uh, there's just... To, to take 1 John 2, 2 in a normative understanding, we have to conclude Jesus did, in fact, die for the whole world. Um, and and the, the argument against this, you know, we see it especially in the Catholic Church, is God, God, uh, Jesus didn't die and, and some of that be wasted. Uh, if Jesus died for everyone and not everyone is saved, then some of Jesus' efforts was wasted. And, you know, I'll let God determine that. But the fact is, I think the scriptures teach us pretty plainly that God, that Jesus died. For the whole world. So God has predestined those for adoption. Man is responsible for his decision to believe in God, and it is an act of the will on man's part to do so. And God died for the whole world. Um, you know, the, the argument tends to be on one of the extremes. Calvinists often are rightly trying to defend the sovereignty of God. I think that's a a, a, a honorable pursuit. Defend, defend God, although you know, God doesn't need defending, but at the same time, you know, uh, it's it's uh, trying to uphold and honor and glorify the Lord in a right understanding of His sovereignty. 
but it's to the extreme. I would say it's to a fault. And Arminians, on the other side of the debate, are trying to defend man's choice, right? So it's it's uh, it's minimizing God's sovereignty in an effort to to emphasize man's responsibility. Uh, it seems to me that scriptures teach both. Now, and and to be transparent, you know, I don't I don't believe the Bible ever teaches man has free will. It's not totally autonomous, is what I mean by that. We obviously make choices. We have a will. We make decisions. We do things based on that will. Um, but God is also completely sovereign. But man also makes choices on his own initiative with his will. But I don't think it's completely autonomous. Uh, it doesn't seem present in the text. Uh, but that obviously is an entirely different discussion, but it does play a role in this idea of predestination election. So uh, an honest theology of freedom, I think, is something we need to be studying today. And, and it's particularly important in the United States as it talks about the idea of the, of the will and free will and things of that nature. But nonetheless, I think if I approach the scriptures and I understand it normatively, God has predestined those to adoption in Ephesians 1. Uh, man is responsible for his decision to believe in God, and that is an act of the will. And God did, in fact, die for everyone. Um, and so, the specifics and filling in the gaps of how that functions—that's uh, that can be a difficult task. And and in some places, the scriptures just simply aren't clear on it. Um, uh, but I don't think I can get around those three basic propositions, if that makes sense. Okay, I have a few follow-ups then. Um, with predestination uh -huh. to adoption, that specific passage in Ephesians 1, I've heard, um, yeah. actually from one of our guests, also has this position we've had before, that that predestination is referring to uh, a future event rather than a current condition. Uh, what is your? Have you heard of this position? Uh, and clearly you have, a, I think, at least a slightly different view there. Um, but what do you think of that view? I haven't I haven't interacted with that concept. Um, uh, but the, my the first thing that comes to mind is uh, I guess Romans eight fifteen, um, where it says, "For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption." Um, as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. That seems to be a present uh, present condition, right? We cry out in a present tense. Now, one could argue again there, what is he talking about, the spirit of adoption or spirit of adoption? Uh, could that be pointing to a future thing? Maybe, but the, the, the verb there that we've received it is a as an aorist tense uh, verb, which either is a... It, points to a past action that's been concluded so it's kind of this idea that that we received it and I, I i would say it's implied that we received it at the time of justification and so now we presently cry out abba father uh, in fairness a, a contrary argument to that is romans 8 23 says and not only this but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the spirit even we ourselves grown within ourselves waiting eagerly for adoption as sons of redemption of our body so now there he's, he's defining in that context this adoption as being a future thing, and it's the redemption of our body specifically. Um, so I could, I could certainly see that, that argument. Verse 5, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. That's fascinating. I haven't looked at the future aspect of it before, 
I'd have to deal with Romans eight fifteen, I think specifically. There's no, there's nothing in, in in Ephesians one five that I think points to a future thing, but coupling that with Romans eight twenty three, that could be, that could be something there, for sure. I've never wrestled with that. I've never heard that argument. Yeah, I think maybe the, the Romans eight twenty three one is where proponents of that view, uh, I think, get that from. Maybe um, I think that makes the most sense. Uh, where they would, because yeah, I agree. Ephesians one doesn't seem to refer directly to a future eschatological type of adoption uh, specifically at least um, but yeah that was just something that I was wondering about um, and then yeah, yeah. you briefly mentioned uh, in reference to limited atonement something about Jesus blood being wasted but you quickly mentioned the Catholic Church uh, could you maybe elaborate on that how they would write or um, what they are referring to there yeah, it's you know the the uh, you see it most explicitly within the Catholic Church. You see it most explicitly in uh, uh, communion, right? The the idea that the that the wine is it, it is actually turning into the blood of Christ, uh, and uh, if if some is spilled, right? Like if if you accidentally spill the cup and and some of it falls on the ground, they go through this process of of cleanup and. and in an attempt not to waste any of it, it's this concept of of, of not wasting Jesus's blood. I think that's the most the, the easiest illustration of the concept. Um, and so that also, as you look at, for instance, uh, uh, like uh, A. W. Pink, and uh, I, I want to say John MacArthur comments on it, and it's just kind of a, a logical argumentation that if if Jesus died for the whole world. Uh, then, then you have to be a universalist uh, because Jesus' death would have been. Um, I, I'm going to say ineffective to a point, right? It's it's not it's it's not totally effective, right? So at some level, Jesus failed uh, because uh, his, some of the blood being spilled, right, being covered by the blood, that kind of concept has been wasted at some level because uh, not everyone he died for was saved. Not everyone believed because we we don't believe the the Bible teaches universalism, right? So that's kind of that's kind of the logical argumentation there. That the and I, I brought up the Catholic Church simply because it's the probably the the easiest illustration to see what kind of what that what that means. But I did I wanted to back up real quick if you're okay with it to the yes. the uh, concept of of predestination in Ephesians, and I think. Even if the the idea of adoption is a future thing, which certainly could be, um, again, I don't I don't want to uh, conclude uh, right now just by looking. This is my first thought through that process. <clears throat> you still have to wrestle with even if that is a future thing. Adoption may be a future event, um, and in the present we simply have the spirit of adoption. That that's possible, but the predestined is still a past event. Um, and so I still have to wrestle with the idea of God predestining and his sovereignty of choice, right? Verse 4 chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Uh, I mean, it's clearly a past event. So I still have to wrestle with that even if adoption is a, is a future thing. Does that make any sense? Yes. No, the, that... actual, 
the actual predestining is a past thing. The what's been predestined may still be yet future. Um, hmm. um, but that's intriguing. I, I, I really, I'm going to look into that. Yes, it's definitely, um, uh, it is a difficult uh, thing to, and I haven't, I've, I have to also say that I haven't really um, went, to, went deep into the proponents of this view, exposition of the text or the exegesis of the text myself i just briefly this is like you hear sound bites you hear like partial explanations so it's just uh it's just an alternative perspective that i've now heard uh, on this topic and so i guess it can help us to maybe sharpen our own approach yeah that's fantastic <clears throat> the with the catholic thing that's why i quickly mentioned that because as far as i know roman catholicism doesn't teach a limited atonement um but I, it was interesting for you to illustrate in the way they, the ritualistic aspect of the Eucharist, where they treat it as the physical blood of Christ, for example. Mm. Yeah. So. Yeah, I think I think it's interesting because because while I I would agree I don't, um, I don't know that I'd have to go look at the Catechism. I don't I don't know that the Roman Catholic Church would hold to a limited atonement and a Calvinistic definition of it, um, <clears throat> uh, but. But it, it the the as, that aspect is present within the Catholic Church, and it's also utilized as argumentation uh, within the Calvinistic understanding, if I can maybe put it that way. Okay, yeah, that, that's uh, I, what I what I was commenting. It's a very interesting illustration there. So then, continuing, the Calvinism as defined with Tulip, the basically Reformed soteriology. Would you say Would you say that it's um, to be consistent, that it's inseparably linked to Reformed theology as a whole, as in including covenant theology and all of the, the whole of Reformed theology, and do then leaky dispensationalists, um, so-called uh, John MacArthur, who identified himself as such, um, who seem to want to have a foot in both camps of dispensationalism and Reformed theology, deviate from a consistent literal grammatical historical approach? Yeah, I'd, I'd say if, if Calvinism is defined by TULIP, which is a soteriological doctrine, right? So we have our, I, I would suggest we have our 11, 11 categories of systematic theology, and one of them is soteriology, and that's where TULIP fits. Uh, and of course, it's got connections with all the rest, because that's how systems work. But nonetheless, it's a soteriological doctrine. Then I would suggest, yes, it is inseparable. Um, and most... I would say most dispensationalists who would hold to Calvinism, uh, you know, barring John MacArthur and, and some of those guys, but a lot of people that I've talked to that hold to a traditional dispensational view would say that they hold to a few points, right? I'm a four-point Calvinist or I'm a three-point Calvinist, and typically they disagree with either limited atonement or perseverance of the saints. The, the problem with that is that TULIP is a coherent system, uh, so you, you pull out one point— so let's say I, I pull out total depravity. Well, the whole system, either the whole system has to change, so now you're a zero-point Calvinist, or uh, you have to be inconsistent because uh, TULIP is a is a uh, a consistent system. I mean, it 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 functions together. I wouldn't I wouldn't say it's it's biblical, but it is consistent. Uh, and so if you pull out, it's like taking a car engine. You pull out the fuel system, and the car doesn't run, <laughs> or you have to you have to change. 
you have to make an electric car, right? I mean, uh, there, there's, there's a, a certain way in which if you pull out one aspect of the system, then the whole system either fails or it has to change. So you're either inconsistent or you're not a Calvinist. Uh, if you're a, a three-pointer or a four-pointer, it's just not possible. Uh, so you got to take some of it or you got to take none of it. Uh, I mean, you got to take all of it or you have to take none of it. Uh, R.C. Sproul, he makes a similar statement in his book, What is Reformed Theology? And that's just a small, uh, I don't know if you've ever read it, but it's a pretty small book. And it goes over uh, all of Reformed Theology, but he has a chap. I won't say all, the basics of Reformed Theology. And he has a chapter on TULIP. And he says something like this. He says, if you buy into total depravity, the rest must be accepted. Uh, and I don't disagree with him. If you buy into total depravity as properly defined by a Calvinist, the Calvinist system is a natural outlaying of the results of that. Um, and so when I when I think of a, a dispensationalist who would argue for uh, Calvinism, it's they're taking a uh, Calvinistic, uh, they're taking a dispensational framework and they're forcing a reformed soteriology within that dispensational framework, and it's very similar to only accepting part of TULIP. Dispensationalism has a dispensational soteriology, and it's not TULIP. So if I'm a dispensationalist and I and I uh, 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 uphold TULIP as defined by Calvinism, then uh, I, I, I believe I'm being inconsistent. Uh, and so, uh, a leaky dispensationalist uh, who has a foot in both camps, I think they have to deviate hermeneutically from a consistent LGH approach, uh, and and so they become uh, more more theological, uh, more of a theological hermeneutic when it when it turn when it comes to one aspect of their system of theology, which is soteriology. Does that make any sense? Yeah, definitely. Um, that covers it really. And I actually agree. I, I think you have to be, you have to somewhat compromise because as we've discussed now, reform theology is very much informed by historical theology and it sort of informs itself in the way it interprets scripture. So, no, definitely I agree there and it makes sense. So, uh, to continue now, Kurt's going to ask a few more questions. So, Kurt, you can go ahead. Right, on to the next question. I'd like to know, what was the most frustrating hermeneutics discussion that you've had with anyone? Could be a Calvinist or a, a non-Calvinist, and then also the most promising discussion you've had, like a, a lights coming on moment for that person. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a fun question. And I, I guess one of the most frustrating aspects of, of any discussion, uh, and this is, this is uh, true for, for any discussion revolving around dispensationalism, but the most frustrating aspect of the discussion is the definition of literal, which is why I've started using normative, because uh, us dispies are, are literalists. This is the discussion anyways. I'm not saying this. The discussion goes something like this. Us dispies are literalists to a fault, and Calvinist or covenant guys are allegorical to a fault, but that's just simply not true. It's like, it's like saying, you take everything literally when the say when when the psalmist says the trees clap their hands you think that there's trees with hands and they're actually clapping them and then the literalist looks at the allegorist and says you take everything allegorical and and you don't think anything's literal within the bible and of course that's simply not true uh the 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 literalist understands figures of speech the allegoric the the, the allegorical individual they understand that 
that uh, everything can't be allegorical, that just communication doesn't work that way. Um, uh, and so the discussion, that just massive uh, rabbit trail, the discussion has to really be uh, when do we understand something literally, like when I say tree, I mean an actual tree, uh, by definition, uh, a, a tree, or when we understand something as a figure of speech. That's the discussion. Gerstner, he puts it this way. Gerstner says, even in common speech with one another, John Gerstner does. He writes the book, uh, Wrongly Dividing the Word of Truth. If you're a dispensationalist, it's a critique of dispensationalism, and it's one of the most frustrating books to read, but he says some good stuff. It says, even in common speech with one another, we assume the other person is to be taken literally unless it is perfectly obvious that he is using a metaphor or is allegorizing or is in some other way alerting us to the fact that the usual meaning of the words is not in play at the moment. And what he's doing, he's critiquing the literalist for not doing that. Uh, and then he's defending the allegorist, right? So he's saying, he's basically saying, of course, we understand we should take it literally uh, unless we have you know, uh, an unusual meaning of the words is, is, is obvious, right? It's alerting us to that fact. And I, I don't disagree with them. The problem and the difference between me and John Gerstner is I think oftentimes what you find within a, a reformed theology is that the reasoning behind why we take something non-literal is due to theology, not an exegetically derived conclusion, right? So it's, 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 a a very frustrating aspect is is simply defining what I mean by literal, because I'm upholding what I call the literal grammatical historical hermeneutic. And if you understand me to un, to to mean that everything is a uh, and again, wooden literalism is a common way to put it, uh, then that's problematic, and that that can be very frustrating. An example of this, uh, Kevin DeYoung uh, is a reformed pastor. Uh, again, I mentioned him earlier. He writes for the Gospel Coalition. He wrote a he wrote an article, um, finding who, who the hundred forty four thousand. Okay, and and uh, uh, the way he concludes this, he gives like seven defenses of it. But ultimately, it comes down to his theology necessitates it. Uh, but he uses things like numerology. Okay, so we're not to take it literal. We're supposed to understand the symbols of of numbers. Uh, you know, there's twelve thousand. Or 12 times 12 times 1,000, 12 tribes of Israel, 12 uh, disciples, and then 1,000 meaning a big number. So it's all of God's elect from the Old Testament and New Testament. That's the 144,000. You know, but if you read Revelation 7, says, it even lists out the tribes, right? 12,000 from each tribe, from the tribes, the sons of Israel. It's, it defines it very clearly. So why would you take that allegorically? Well, because as an amillennialist, in order to understand Revelation to point to amillennialism, you have to understand that that can't be uh, an ethnic Israel or from the actual tribes of Israel. That has to be something else. Uh, and you would appeal to the genre of Revelation and all that stuff, but we don't have to go down that path. But it's kind of a common example of that. So that can be that can be a bit frustrating. I think I think as it pertains to the most promising discussion you've had. Um. The ones that I like the most are the ones where we we come to common ground, right? So if I'm talking to a Calvinist, and again, I get I've been accused of being a Calvinist uh, uh, quite a bit, and and it's probably simply because I would point to predestination of the individual, not just simply a predestination of the community. So people would uh, consider me a Calvinist. So we find common ground, and then we're able to have the discussion of. Uh, what does the text allow and where are your uh, logical 
where are you forcing logic where the text doesn't teach it? If that makes sense. It's often it's 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 kind of like uh, the idea that the text uh, teaches the pre so double predestination is a perfect example, and that's the idea that that God predestines some to salvation, and then the double part of it is well then God predestines some to hell. Well, the Bible just simply doesn't teach that. Now, is it is it possible? Sure. Is it is it certain? No. No, I can't be certain of that uh, because the Bible doesn't teach that. So we can find common ground on predestination in some cases, depending on the flavor of Calvinism you're you're talking to. But now that we've got common ground, let's talk through the the hermeneutic, uh, the interpretive method of concluding things that just simply aren't in the text and then asking the question, why am I concluding that? Is it based on is it based on uh, uh, what I would consider man's logic, right? Is it a is it a logical conclusion? Well, that doesn't that doesn't teach certainty. That teaches you know possibility, maybe even probability in some instances. But if the Bible doesn't teach it, I'm not going to uh, assert it as dogma. And so uh, that that's probably the most promising ones because anytime I have a disagreement with someone. Uh, it's fun to go down the trail of what theologically do we disagree on, but ultimately I want to trace all of that back to the interpretive method. Where is our difference in methodology? Because if we can then uh, discuss that uh, and we can come to some conclusions on that, now we understand the the uh, uh, the reason behind the difference in conclusions, and then you just apply that to all of theology, right? So we disagree in soteriology, and we're having that discussion. Well, why? What methodology? Where's our difference at in our methodology that leads us to these various conclusions? And now I understand what, if you're consistent, I'll understand what you conclude in, in all of these other systems, and we can discuss methodology. And if if you can take someone who is a theological hermeneutic guy, and you can show them the flaw in the theological hermeneutic and bring them to a literal grammatical historical hermeneutic, then as they apply that hermeneutic method, it will it will adjust the system to be more biblical, if that makes sense. That certainly does. I, I agree with you there, the, um, finding the common ground part. I, I mean, I can also share from my own side that when I am talking to a Calvinist and we are speaking about things that we can agree on and, you, you know, just uh, I can in use that to to go in that direction of literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic. It's it's wonderful. It, it's great when you can still be friendly to one another and, you know, just try and um, nudge them in the in the right direction. Well, uh, Mornay, is there anything else you'd like to ask before we uh, close off? Um, no, I don't have any further questions. Um, but uh, thanks for joining us, John. It was really informative to get your perspective on these topics, especially from that hermeneutics, because that's what your emphasis is with the with your own podcast that you are currently um, doing. And uh, so, yes, I, all I can say is thanks. It's great to hear your perspective as well. Yeah, it, it was an honor. It was an honor to be able to join you guys. I and I I would say that uh, you know I, I always try to do my best to uh, as I'm critiquing or interacting with a view that I disagree with, uh, trying to be as as uh, accurate as I can in their representation. And I'm sure that there will be some who will listen to the podcast and and maybe are reformed or Calvinistic and would disagree with my representation of them. 
um, at some level. You know, that's almost always the case. Simply as as there's uh, uh, differences of opinion within the within that camp itself. So, so I, you know, I'm I'm doing my best to be as as a, a good of a representative as I can. Not not adding any straw men. Um, uh, I appreciate and love my my Calvinist brothers and uh, uh, love the discussion. So I appreciate you guys giving me the opportunity uh, to to discuss such an important topic. Well. Uh, thank you from my side as well for joining us. And to our listeners, you can check out uh, John Oglesby's website. It's johnoglesby.org and his own podcast called Biblical Hermeneutics Podcast, which is available on the major podcast providers. So once again, thank you to our listeners. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. And until next time, be nice to Calvinists. Good night, everyone. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Word on Worldviews podcast. You can find the Word on Worldviews on most podcast distribution platforms. Feel free to give us a rating if you are so inclined. The opening and closing music credits for this podcast is Noeland by Kevin McLeod.